Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news that we have in this book. Lord, I ask your Holy Spirit to come, that you would help me preach. I pray for our church, that you would help us be aware of your kingdom in our midst, that we might participate with what you are already doing. For I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you've probably caught on to the fact that in the beginning of the year, uh, we make it a strong emphasis on mission, and um, we're in the midst of this 3 for 30 campaign. If you're visiting, that wall over there uh, to, to your right has a list of over a thousand names on it of friends and family members that we're praying for, um, in particular for an opportunity to invite them to Alpha, which starts on February 10th. So... I find a great mystery in how the kingdom of God works sometimes, in that the three people that I've been praying for every day, I've got them on the sticker that's in my car, and um, you guys, we're all praying as a church. I literally have not laid eyes on any of them since I started praying for them. They're completely missing in action. In fact, I'm starting to suspect that one of them might not even live in the house that I thought she was in. But the other side of it is God has opened up several other opportunities to invite people to Alpha that were um, surprising to me, people that were very receptive, and we'll see if they actually respond and come. Um, but that's kind of the mystery of how this works, and I don't claim to totally have it understood at all or even a little bit. But there are some clear teachings in Scripture that help us know how to navigate those mysteries. So last week, I, I talked to the question of why. Why do we have to share the faith with others? Why do we go on mission? Why are we a sent people? And the answer, the short answer, is because God loves the lost. And the scripture told us that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous people that need no repentance. God has a heart for the lost. That's why Jesus came, and he invites us to be part of his mission. Today and next week, we want to look at the how. Okay, if we get that God has a heart for the lost and he's including us in that work, how do we go about it? What are we supposed to do? What does that look like? And I want to begin by asking this question of all of us. Could I be missing it? Could I be missing the kingdom of God in my midst? Could it be happening right here and I'm just missing it? And I'll give you an illustration from something I've been playing around with lately. We now have a homeschool group that comes every other Friday afternoon to learn chess with a teacher who's a member of our church. He's the coach. And so I've been sneaking in there to get some chess lessons from these children and have recently made the mistake of downloading an app on my phone. So I'm now playing quick games of chess with people around the world. And the painful thing I learned was that after I lose a game or win a game, I can hit the button that says Analyze. And it goes through every move quickly, and it, and it gives it a label. Inaccurate, inaccurate, blunder, <laughs> missed mate. I could have had a checkmate in one of the games, and I just didn't even see it. I just moved right past it. And I, one move, and I would have won the game. There was a checkmate, in, in, and I didn't even see it. I totally missed it. Is it possible for us that God's kingdom is coming right in our midst? There's somebody that he wants to bring in, and we're positioned perfectly to help that happen, and we're oblivious. We totally missed it. Could that be happening in your life? The kingdom of God is invisible to many. To many people, it's invisible. And I'm going to um, share something else that, that Jesus says in Luke. This is in Luke chapter 17. He, he was being asked, it says, by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And this is the answer Jesus gave. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. All right, so the kingdom of God is right here in the midst of you, 
and it can't be observed with basic scientific observation. It's not like a government being set up and you can say, oh, there's their capital building. Oh, there's their president. Oh, that's, it's not quite like that. This, the kingdom of God is wherever a heart has surrendered to the rule and reign of Christ. So right down the middle of a room, the kingdom of God could be in half of the people, let's say, and the other half totally missing it. Could I be one of the ones missing it? Some of you here this morning are believers. Your heart is surrendered to God. You delight in His things. You want to serve Him. Others are questioning and seeking, and you might be here because the Lord is drawing you in. A question I would ask you if you're one of those ones that is curious, that's, that's a skeptic maybe, or questioning is, could you be experiencing it right now and you just don't have the, the religious labels for what's happening? I've told some of you before, when I was in high school in 11th grade, it was very pragmatic, really. A soccer teammate of mine invited me to come to his youth group. I went and I found, um, I, I just enjoyed going. I didn't know why. I started to appreciate the little Bible lessons that were, giving, that were given and singing some songs, and I started to find myself having friendships with people that didn't fit the typical high school cliques. You know, I was in sort of the jock clique, and I was starting to be friends with people that weren't like me because we were all finding affinity around the gospel. And I started reading the Bible on my own, and I started finding joy that was never there before. It was all happening over a period of a year, probably, and I just didn't realize what was going on until I looked back later, and I realized, I've become a Christian. I've met the Lord. The Scriptures are alive to me. The kingdom of God was right here, and I didn't realize it, and now I'm in. Maybe you're here this morning because God's doing that very thing in your life. You'll look back five years from now, and you'll go, I got saved in that season. I didn't even know it was happening. It was just because somebody invited me to something. Could that be you? Now, today's text is Luke chapter 10. It's in in your pew Bible on page 868. I'd like you to turn there with me, and we're going to talk about how do we go about the kingdom work God is calling all of his followers to do. And as you find your way to 868, um, let me give you some preliminaries. This is Jesus sending out 72 of his disciples to go into the towns where he's planning to go himself. That's helpful because if you think that you're being sent out like the lone ranger on this deal, you're not. Jesus is already ahead of you, and he's coming behind you as well. So he's going to go to these towns, and he sends his disciples in pairs, and he tells them, I want you to go out and tell them about the kingdom of God. Now, the first observation I want to point out, if you look right away in verse 2, it says, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. We have a supply and demand imbalance. The kingdom of God is happening all around us. A harvest of souls, of people, is being brought in, and there aren't enough laborers. Secondly, prayer is a priority. He says, therefore, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up more laborers. We pray for this wall. We're praying a lot. Somebody once said, we shouldn't talk to man about God until we've talked to God about man. So go to the Lord and pray for people, pray for situations, and then respond by watching what the Lord opens up. I'm going to get to the tool in a minute that will help you recognize when he's opening something up. Now, in this particular instance, Jesus is telling them to go out with no supplies. Who leaves town with no money in their wallet, no passport, no extra stuff, no change of clothes? You don't do that, typically. Here, Jesus is saying, go with basically the clothes on your back. And he does it to teach them to rely on God. 
in this instance. But if you if you're to jump ahead in um, in the scriptures and look a little bit later in Luke's gospel, we see him telling them something else. This is in uh, Luke 22. He says, "When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything?" And they said, "Nothing." That was point taken, right? God will provide what you need. I sent you out with nothing on that first mission so you'd learn that God is going to provide what you need. And he says, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it along, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. What Jesus is saying is, the first time I sent you out, it was in a peaceful moment. You were going to have a much easier mission. But now there's a division. Jesus oftentimes causes a division. Some are really responding to him. Others are hating him and trying to put him to death. And if that's how they're going to treat him, you, his followers, be ready. It's going to sometimes be a hostile environment. So now I want you to take preparations. You might be entirely rejected from some town you go to. You're going to need some extra clothes or whatever it is. So this isn't a general principle here, go with nothing. That's specific to this instance. So don't miss that. But I think we all need to learn to rely on God. He does provide our needs. One of my seminary professors said something really helpful. She said, you pastors, when you go out into the world, you don't have much, but you have enough. Here's what God is giving you as the tools for kingdom work. You have your story, meaning your testimony, which is kind of, I just shared a little bit about it from my high school days. You have your story. You have your prayers. You have the gospel message, which is about a son of God who died on a cross out of love for us and offers forgiveness of sins and his Holy Spirit and an invitation into a new covenant community. You have that message. And you've got the sacraments, baptism and communion. Those are the tools. It doesn't seem like much, but it's sufficient. God will provide. And with that, you can be effective in this mission. He gives us that as an encouragement. And then the Apostle Paul says later in 2 Corinthians, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, you're the jar of clay, and the treasure you have is the gospel message. It's an incredible treasure, and it's in a jar of clay, and he says it's to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, which was sort of the whole point of him sending them out with nothing. You're going to see that God is preparing this. He's made the harvest ready, and you're going to go, and you're going to bring in the harvest, and you're going to see that God did it. He used you as a tool, but he did it. Now, in a similar way, we are all being sent out. I mean, that's the great commission of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. And Jesus says, and I am with you to the end of the age. We never go alone in this. Now, let me give you the method and where this came from. It comes out of this text in Luke 10 and a parallel text in Matthew 10 about the sending out of the 12 there. In 2001, Heather and I uh, we're worshiping at a church in South Carolina, and the Lord, um, there's no other way to put it, the Lord just told us to quit our jobs and to move over there and do an immersion experience, and that we weren't going back into the Episcopal church that we were in. And so we did that, and we went over to this church in Sheffield, England, and it was an interesting ministry because in England, even to this day, the percentage of their citizens that would claim to be Christians on a survey is very low, like maybe less than 3%. And it was a truly post-Christian society. 
most people wouldn't check Christian on a survey box. They would say other, or they would say, you know, spiritually seeking or something. They would not say, I'm a Christian. And this particular church in Sheffield, England, was doing incredible kingdom work around the city. They had probably 2,000 people, many of them university age. They were many under the age of 30 that were in these missional communities organized around the city, and they were um, bringing in the harvest. And this was a church that was half Anglican, half Baptist. They had pulled two churches together that were on mission um, for the kingdom. And it was an immersion experience for us. So for three months, we were in a missional community. We lived with them. We worshiped with them. We watched what they did. And they taught a very simple teaching out of this passage on how to recognize the person of peace. So Francis, if you'll put those three words up on the screen, the person of, of peace does these three things. They welcome you, they listen to you, and they serve you. When that happens, you know that they're open to the kingdom of God, and they will open up the town, so to speak. The word that they used in England was oikos, which is the Greek word for household. Contrary to what the yogurt in public says, it's called oikos, but that word in Greek means household. You are part of a household, but don't think like physical home, although that's part of it. Think everywhere that your relational network expands. So you've got classmates in school, you've got teammates in sports, you've got neighbors on your street, you've got coworkers, you've got kind of a network of relationships, all the different people that you know in differing levels of intimacy. But you have this network, this oikos, this household, this sphere of influence, number of different ways to say it. And when you find a person of peace in one of those, they have an oikos as well. And that begins to open up. So Jesus said, go into the towns where I'm going to go and say, peace be upon this house. Now, now you wouldn't say that. It would be weird. But in some way, you are, you are greeting the house or you're speaking a kind word. And if a person of peace is there, let your peace remain on that house. Stay with them. Let them serve you. Talk about the kingdom of God. Pray for them. Tell them the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then don't jump around from house to house. In other words, it's not about your gain. Don't use the friendship for what it can gain you. And if there's a better one, blow that person off and go over here to get something more. It's not about that. Stay with the one that welcomes you, and then that person will open up the whole village, the whole oikos. So if you have a friend that then is open to the kingdom of God, they will then tell their friends about God. You don't even have to do it. They'll open up the whole thing. And I was watching this happen all over Sheffield, England. It was a fascinating thing. So the person of peace welcomes you. Now, we all know if we're being welcomed or not, starting from the youngest age. By the time you're about four, you know if somebody wants to be your friend or not. Kids are more explicit. Adults are only slightly less explicit about it. But they will, with their countenance, with their words, either accept you or reject you. If someone rejects you, Jesus is saying, well, don't waste your time. Move on. That for you is not the appointment. If, but if someone does receive you, then talk about the kingdom with them. Offer to pray for them. You can say, hey, I'm a praying person. I believe in God. It sounds like your situation needs some prayer. Can I pray for you? You can tell them your story if they're open to it. You just describe what's going on in your relationship with God. The person of peace will serve you. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a big thing. It could be something simple as getting you a glass of water or offering to, you know, pick up your notes because you missed the day of class or whatever. Little things, but those are indicators that they're a person of peace. So once you find this person of peace, then you begin to share the kingdom with them. You can invite them in. You could pray for them. You could bring them to Alpha. You could see what the Lord would do. 
but recognize those people of peace. Now, let me give you two examples from the Scriptures where this plays out, and there are many in here. One is in John chapter 4. Jesus goes into a town in Samaria, and he goes to a well at midday, and there's a woman there by herself getting water. And Jesus begins to speak to her and ask her to get him some water. And they have a whole dialogue about the kingdom of God. She does the classic stuff. Now, it doesn't say she actually handed him the water, but I'm presuming she did give him the water because he asked her for it, and she started to listen to him, and they have a whole dialogue about the kingdom of God. She welcomes him, and she's surprised that he, a Jewish man and a rabbi, is willing to talk to this Samaritan woman. And she welcomes him in return and begins to speak about her life and about worship and about morality. And then she opens up the oikos, the whole town. She goes into the town, and while she's doing that, the disciples return from the store. They went to get some food. And um, just then, it says the whole town was coming out. And Jesus says this, and it's not clear in the text because you can't see, see what was happening, but the whole town's coming out. The disciples are like, what's going on? Why were you talking to that woman? And he says, lift up your eyes and look. The harvest field is white for harvest as he sees all these people coming. And it was like, look, there's the harvest. It's coming in. Open your eyes to see it. And when they get there, they ask Jesus some questions, shares about the kingdom, and they say, now we believe her testimony. We believe that you are the Christ. And many believed in him, it says. Now you might go, okay, fine, Mike, but that's Jesus, and it seems to always work for Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Okay, let me give you another example from Acts from some of the followers of Jesus. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas go into the town of Philippi, and they're looking to do kingdom work. They're looking for the person of peace. They hear that there's a prayer place by some stream, and some women gather there to pray. There's no synagogue in that town, but Paul's a Jewish man, and he's looking for the synagogue, so he uses whatever his typical pattern would be. He goes there, and he finds a woman named Lydia, who's a rich businesswoman, very successful. She sells purple cloths, and she's rich. And the Lord opens her heart to listen to Paul person of peace. Fast forward, she ends up saying, come stay at my house. She becomes the leader of a house church that starts in that town of Philippi, and out of her church, they launch a very big ministry. But it goes south very quickly, and they get arrested and thrown into prison. While they're in prison, Paul and Silas are singing hymns at the middle of the night. So everybody in there is hearing about the kingdom of God, or at least they're thinking these two are crazy. They're locked up, they've been beaten, and they're singing hymns and talking about God but they all know, okay, these are men of God or spiritual people. Well, then God breaks in and does a miraculous thing. An angel opens the prison doors. Paul then speaks to the jailer, and the jailer becomes a person of peace. The jailer then brings Paul and Silas to his home, bandages up their wounds on their back from where they were beaten, serves them food, listens to everything that they share about God, about Jesus, about the kingdom of God. Then they get baptized. His entire household, his oikos, this jailer opens up the whole household to be baptized, and that's, that's how it works. Person of peace, very simple. You can find that in a number of places throughout the scriptures. Now, I want to encourage you to think about where the kingdom of God might be happening right now in your life. In another place, Paul is encouraged by God to stay in Corinthians, in Corinth, to preach to the Corinthians, and he's, he's getting some resistance, but God tells him specifically, I have many who are my people in this city. Keep preaching boldly. See, that's an encouragement to Paul to look for the people. They're out there. 
And God is bringing in a harvest, and he's looking for laborers to help with this. The laborers do those three simple things. They look for the person of peace. The person of peace welcomes you, listens to you, and serves you. When you find one, share about the kingdom of God, let them open up their whole relationship network, and see what happens. That's how Christianity has gone from year to year to year for 2,000 years now. And I want to encourage you to leverage those networks. God's kingdom is in our midst, and he's inviting us to be part of it. And I will tell you, it's the simplest of things that opens up an eternally significant conversation. Look for it. Be on the lookout for it. God's kingdom is in in our midst. It's a God-saturated universe. Pray that he would open the eyes of the hearts of people in your life to his presence. Let's do that right now. Lord, I pray that you would stir up our church with a lost heart, a heart for the lost. I pray that we would see your kingdom in our midst. Lord, those people that we've thought about today, go ahead of us, Lord. Open up their hearts to hear the gospel. I pray that we would see the person of peace and that you'd give us boldness. Help us, Lord, to feel natural in doing this because our faith is real. Lord, develop our prayer life and our time with you. Encourage us, please. I pray that your harvest would come in. I pray specifically for Alpha, for your help. I ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.